Would you remain standing and recite with me the Shema as it's printed in your bulletins? Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. As we continue our journey through 1 Corinthians this summer, our scripture passage is from the end of chapter 7, beginning with verse 17. Paul wrote this, However that may be, let each of you lead the life that the Lord has assigned, to which God called you. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But obeying the commandments of God is everything. Let each of you remain in the condition in which you were called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. Even if you can gain your freedom, make use of your present condition now more than ever. For whoever was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed person belonging to the Lord, just as whoever was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of human masters. In whatever condition you were called, brothers and sisters, there remain with God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. A couple of years ago, I was attending a women's retreat, and a friend of mine who is married to a pastor used Psalm 16 to talk about her life. The boundary lines for me have been drawn in pleasant places. She talked about her kind, charismatic husband, her great children, her sweet church, I know the family well, and what she said was all very true, very genuine. But sometimes, sometimes I wonder about how pleasant the boundary lines are. When Keith and I were dating in college, I shared with him the thought that I would go to seminary after college and be a pastor, and Keith said, I want to break up. Now, really, who can blame him? One of the first invitations he received when I was newly ordained was to join the clergy wives hat parade at annual conference. He declined the invitation. Several months ago, I was having a minor medical procedure, and the anesthesiologist asked me if I knew him. Because I don't often recognize people that I should, I responded, Should I know you? He said, are you a judge or a parole officer? (laughs) No, I laughed. (laughs) What do you do? He said, are you a domestic goddess? No, I replied, I'm not qualified. I work at a church and I'm a pastor. He said, then lady, you've certainly never seen my face. I don't know if you've thought about it. 
but it is sometimes wearisome and awkward to be the church lady. And yet, when I consider pastor friends this church has in Mexico and in Burundi, I know that there are others whose boundaries are even more arduous and burdensome than my own. I tend to think that the Corinthians understood this dilemma. They certainly knew who was in and who was out. The society of Corinth was highly stratified. Culturally, they knew what they valued. They valued wealth. They valued family lineage. They valued connections to Rome, cultural sophistication, and athletic prowess. Better off Corinthians had a high ranking in more than one of those dimensions. One of the main characters in the historical novel by Ben Witherington that's entitled A Week in Corinth is an aristocrat in the city who is a pure-blooded Roman. He's descended from a Roman dictator. He has money. He has pedigree. He even has political aspirations. This guy in the novel has everything. He even has in his household a slave who has a huge memory for details and for names, a nomenclator. I need one of those. A favorite Roman motto that I can imagine was often used in Corinth is the motto, Cursus Honorum, which means, by any means necessary, achieve honor. Achieve honor however you can. Because of both Corinth's location and its status as a new Roman colony, it was a clearinghouse for slavery. It sat on the coast. A conservative estimate is that in the first century, when Paul was writing to the Christians in Corinth, a third of the population were slaves. So when Paul writes to this church of a hundred people in Corinth, it is more than likely accurate that some of them are in fact slaves. Now, Corinthian slavery was different from the slavery that you and I are familiar with from American slavery or European slavery. Because there were a variety of jobs for a slave in Corinth. Many did work in deplorable conditions in agriculture or in mining. But some slaves were civil servants working for the government. Some were teachers. Some were artisans. Some were allowed to have their own business and make their own money. So in many cases, it was at least economically better to be a slave than to be free and poor. You can imagine, though, that even among the poor and the slaves, there was this hierarchy of position in life. This is who Paul is writing to. People who are locked into position. People who are locked into rank. Measuring each movement that they make by how far up or how far down it will carry them. And judging others and themselves by their status. Maybe you saw this week, it got a lot of play, a video that's on YouTube about a 14-year-old boy in Atlanta, Georgia, who wins a poetry contest. He wins a poetry contest with a poem that's entitled White Boy Privilege. This poem describes categories of Americans on different rungs of a ladder 
and the remorse that he feels about being on the top rung of the ladder. This week in our house, our chihuahua found a bone that was left in my house by my mother's dog that we were dog-sitting earlier in the week. Our dog, the chihuahua, carried the dingo bone around with her head held low and avoiding everyone in the house. When she came into the kitchen with the bone and I was sitting at the table outside of her view, I said, hey, puppy, what do you have? And my daughter replied, guilt. (laughs) Some of us are walking around like my chihuahua (laughs) with blessings that we just happened upon or that we were born into. If you are carrying guilt, I believe that Paul can speak to that. When Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he gets on the rungs of the ladder and he tells them, this ladder that you all sit upon, this ladder, it's meaningless. He writes about circumcision and uncircumcision and he labels both nothing. He tells slaves not to be troubled by their designation. Now, he's not arguing for slavery, as some have suggested. Verse 21 says, make use of your present condition now more than ever. I think a more accurate translation might be this. If a chance of liberty should come, take it. Paul valued liberty. Paul valued freedom. One of the smallest books in the Bible, Philemon, is written by Paul asking for the freedom of a slave, Onesimus. Now, ironically, Paul is writing for Onesimus' freedom while he himself is imprisoned. Freedom for all is our highest goal. It's the basis of our story as God's faithful people. The beginning of our story is God's people enslaved in Egypt led to freedom. And we tell the story of our Messiah who leads us to freedom from slavery to sin and death. Paul wants Christians to know that if physical freedom is not available, spiritual freedom is always ours. Prison and slavery are not ideal places for kingdom people, but nothing can stop us from doing kingdom work. And then you will remember from last week, Paul tells the wives in the Corinthian church that their bodies belong to their husbands. This was not new news. But then he turns and tells the husbands that their, wi- that their bodies belong to their wives. This news was radical. Paul is not dismissing the hardships of many of life's positions, but he is dismissing the importance of any classification we might put on ourselves or on one another. There is another point in the New Testament when Paul writes to the church of the first century. It's the Christians in Galatia. And Paul will put in one sentence this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. New Testament scholar Tom Wright suggests that this is exactly the point he's making to the Corinthians, just with greater detail. 
In this chapter, Paul writes about circumcision. He writes about slavery and he writes about marriage. There is, he is saying, no longer Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free, for we all are one in Christ Jesus. When we look at one another, our focus is not to be on what divides us, but on what unites us in the body of Christ. Paul would say, don't evaluate yourself or anyone else by the rung of the ladder you sit on. Keith and Daniel went fishing this last week at the coast. And Daniel came home with a great fish story. He was out of the boat fishing in shallow water and he bumped his foot on a rock. So the adult in the boat took a net to the rock so no one else would scratch their foot. When he pulled the net up, He had a conch shell and a clam. That was not a rock. I would tell you this fish story, and it's true. So often society's values blind us to what really stands in front of us, to who really stands in front of us. It is the truth of our faith that from the earliest time, converts were to focus not on outward appearance, or an adherence to a set of rules, but they were to focus instead on inward transformation, who we were on the inside, what the bag holds on the inside, rocks or candy. Jesus told his followers a parable, a story about a good Samaritan. And when he told his followers about the good Samaritan, he was not advising them to revere those who got ritual procedure correct or even those who had the appearance of holiness. Instead, he was reminding them that loving God often means remaining open enough to both inconvenient and risky circumstances. Becca Stevens, who is a pastor in Tennessee, and runs a business called Thistle Farms, tells a story about one of her employees named Ty. Ty, after a year of clean and sober living, following a 12-step recovery program from addiction, prostitution, and trauma, was rearrested. She was rearrested on an outstanding warrant from years before, and she was sentenced to three years in prison. When Ty was asked, how did you do it? How did you not protest the unfairness of it all? She responded, I was in prison, but I wasn't by myself. I could take it because my sisters in Christ, they loved me. They wrote letters. They came to see me. They put money on my commissary card and they promised they would be there when I got home. When we love beyond boundaries, God shows up and lives are changed for the better. The 18th chapter of Matthew, Jesus says, when two or more are gathered in my name, I will be there with them. Jesus did not say when two or more rabbis gather. He did not say when two or three men gather. He did not say when two or more righteous Christians gather. Jesus said, whenever two or three gather in my name, I will be there. The truth about our faith is that it is contagious. 
When we live it out in our homes and in our businesses, other people catch it. And we get even more of it. Paul debunked the common wisdom of the time by telling believers to be in community with unbelievers. He told spouses to stay married to unbelievers because their faith was contagious and they could lead one another to greater freedom and we can lead one another to greater freedom. What is yours to share, I wonder? Don't be picky about who you share it with. Share freely. Amen.